So um, we are in, during the month of August, a sermon series where uh, each week different people are talking about a Bible story or a Bible character that's really spoken to them. And uh, we were thinking about this and praying about this. And for us, the story that's come to mind is the story of Esther. Uh, in the Old Testament. And it's one which you're going to hear for, for both of us, for Hannah and myself, it's been very important uh, at different stages in our lives. And if I was going to give you the big overview, the two things that we particularly take out of Esther, firstly, there's this story of how Esther really matures. She starts out uh, early on in the book as someone who's um, really like a pawn in the game of these powerful men. She's very shy, not sure of herself. But you watch her during the arc of that story become this mature, godly, very capable leader who does amazing things for God. So that's the first thing. And then that leads into the second thing that we really love from the book of Esther, which particularly applies uh, to all of us, which is how God can place us in certain situations and contexts uh, in order to use us, so that you and I have opportunity to be people, men and women, boys and girls, who can be influencers of many, many other people and in situations. And so um, it might be unexpected how God does that, but I believe, we believe, that God wants to use all of us, perhaps in unexpected ways, in this new year ahead. So that's what we want to jump into. And um, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be reading in just a moment Esther chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, they're under the seats, so you can put your hand underneath, pull out, you know, some old chewing gum someone left there, and then underneath that, there's the Bible. So grab that. Esther chapter, if you're not sure what Esther is, uh, open the Bible roughly in the middle, you find the book of Psalms. Go back before that. Before that is the book of Job, and before that is the book of Esther. So that's where we are. So Esther chapter 4. Hannah, you're just going to set us up before Heather comes and reads to us. So just to give you a bit of background, a lot of you will know the story, but um, this is set roughly in the year 479 BC in the Empire of Persia, which is one of the huge, of course, uh, empires um, in history. And we've got King Xerxes there, who is the ruler of this nation, and he needs a new wife. So he calls this great big beauty contest and asks for all the beautiful young women throughout the whole nation to come to the capital city, Susa, and they um, they go through this process of this beauty treatments, and the king goes and chooses one of these women to be the queen, the next queen. And of course, Esther, who is uh, a Jewish orphan, um, of course, the Jews were in exile there for that period of time, Uh, she wins this competition, so she becomes the next queen. And her cousin, Mordecai, is the one who has brought her up. He's really wise. He has given her lots of interesting and sound advice throughout her upbringing. One of the things he tells her as she's going through this process and becoming queen is to not talk about her Jewish faith at this point. So this comes to a bit of a crunch point when the wicked Haman, who is the advisor to the king, um, has this grudge against Jews, and he comes up with a plot to uh, assassinate all the Jews, and he um, manipulates the king into signing this edict to um, kill all the Jews. So Esther, at this point, needs to decide what she's going to do. So that's where we um, take off the rest of the story. Today's reading is Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city 
into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. When Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I want to show you another photograph now of a place that had been on my bucket list for a while. So when we're in London, we went to the Churchill War Rooms, uh, which are uh, the underground bunker where Winston Churchill during World War II, particularly in 1939-1940, during the Blitz, um, when the Nazis were trying to overtake uh, Great Britain. This is where he ran and his generals ran the war from. So it's in Whitehall in the seat of government, a little way from Downing Street. And um, you can go, it's a fantastic museum, a a very interesting place to go. Uh, But something that struck me there was on the way in, on the next picture, there's this uh, quotation of Churchill that was inscribed, where he says, we are all worms, 
but I do believe that I am a glow worm, which is a fantastic quote, and uh, it, it came a couple of times while we were there. And uh, what it struck me as is this. God has called each one of us to make a difference. You can be someone who shines for Jesus. Raise a hand if you like the sound of that, if you'd like to be someone who, who, who makes a difference wherever you go, at school, at home, with your friends, as you play sport, as you go on camps, wherever you are. And there's this sense of call over all of us, I believe, that we're meant to be men and women, boys and girls, who are like that. We're, we may be worms, but we can be glow worms. We can make a difference to the environment where we find ourselves. And here's the thing about this. Sometimes that can be really quite a simple thing to do. It can be a lot of fun to do. Other times, it can feel like you're balancing on a knife edge. You're teetering. It could really slip into a lot of danger, a lot of difficulty. And you're in this place where you're really dependent upon God, and you're clinging on to God. You're in this situation, you know you have to be there, but it's not necessarily easy. And uh, this is the situation that we see in Esther. If we go to the next slide, these pivotal words uh, where uh, Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And the principle that we take from that verse, which is really the hinge verse, verse of the whole book of Esther, is that God has purposes for your life that you cannot foresee. God has got purposes for my life, for your life, that we cannot foresee. He's got things he's planned, things he's lined up. It's almost like when when Mordecai says that phrase to Esther, there's a wistfulness about it. He says, who knows whether you've been raised up to this situation for such a time as this. He's suggesting there's a destiny for Esther that somehow the events of her previous four years since coming to the royal throne after that beauty pageant Hannah was telling us about um, have been building towards this one pivotal moment where everything is on the line, where she has to make the right choice. As we were talking about this, it reminded me of several other Bible verses. Uh, one of them is uh, Jeremiah 29.11, that's been a big one in my own life, probably yours as well, where it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. And that word there for plans, um, in some ways is better translated purposes. It's not so much that God is saying on Tuesday at 7.42 in the morning, you're going to turn out the house and turn left down Acacia Drive and I'm going to, I've pre-programmed you. It's much more this sense of God has got purposes for your life. He's got good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. He's got dreams about who you could become, the influence you could have, the way in which you could be a light for him. Uh, Another verse that is a good one is Ephesians 1.11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Lots and lots of long words in there, which you can summarize very simply. You can summarize it like this. God wants to use you. To kids, this is for you as well, as well as us old wrinkly people. God wants to use you. And that's one of the things we learn from Esther. Okay, some some specific examples. Mm. So, so, So whatever the circumstances of your birth, you are not an accident. You are wanted. You have a purpose. 
whatever age you are. So if you're sitting here, you're a kid, if you're seven years old or you're a teenager and you feel that nobody listens to you and it's frustrating, God wants to hear you. God hears you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to use you. He doesn't want you to wait just till you're an adult. He wants to work with you now. And then uh, some of us think we've done all sorts of dumb stuff in our life. How could God possibly want to use us? But he wants each one of us to know that we are loved, that he wants us, and that he has purposes for us and our lives. So whatever our story, whoever we are, we're all unique, and yet God has made us for a reason. It's not just an accident, we're not just trudging through life, but there is destiny and there is a reason. There's going to be another slide. So Psalm 139, famous verse, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So I like to think that when God looks at us, his eyes are just full of excitement and happiness and joy over us. It says another, another um, Bible verse, he rejoices over us. He delights in us. And um, it's, I mean, I find it amazing that God would do that over me. So we fit, we don't just have an identity, but we have a purpose in life too. So who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom or the family or your workplace or school or college or wherever for such a time as this. I think one of the reasons we love the book of Esther as we've been talking about it afresh is there's this sense of um, hope and destiny over this little orphan girl who is a refugee from an outcast nation. She's on the outer fringes of society, uh, as far away from power as you could be, and yet God raises her up to be the queen alongside the ruler of the biggest empire in the world at that time. God had this incredible plan and, and, and destiny for her life. Uh, and um, you may not end up ruling an empire, probably, but you have been placed in all sorts of places and situations and contexts where you, and here's the important thing, I think it's the thing we were discussing earlier, only you can bring the presence of Jesus. Only you can do that. Because God has placed you uniquely there with your gifts and your character and the strengths that you have, and your weaknesses as well. Only you can represent him there in that place. And he may call you to shape a person or a group of people. It might be an individual or even an institution. But God has placed you there deliberately. You may not realize this. You may think, how have I got here? How can I make a difference here? But um, God has done this. And all false modesty aside you need to realize that you're in that situation for such a time as this. Yeah, go on. So, um, so as we were thinking about this, I guess this verse was particularly evident over us many years ago when, um, so in 1998, we'd been in ministry for four years um, uh, leading a church plant on the edge of London. And God called us out of that to a new place. It was actually back to my home church in a city called Sheffield in the north of England. And um, it was a great church, it was big, it was thriving, it was happening, lots of energy, life, young people. And we were really excited, mostly, I think, <laughs> a few of my hangouts to go back to my home church, but it was really good to go back. We were really great friends with the senior pastor there. We'd go and have um, dinner with him whenever we were visiting uh, my parents. And he had specifically said to us, do you want to come back um, and join the staff team? 
So we said, we prayed, we, we had a couple of other offers actually at the same time, but we felt this was the right thing. And we went back to Sheffield, went to this home church. And uh, about eight months in, it emerged that uh, this guy with the other senior member of staff had been having a long-term affair. And so chaos ensued. Alex was the only mem senior member of staff left. And this house of cards just fell flat. And um, we, Alex, was held holding the baby. We had some outside support as well. But uh, there was so much going on, so much hurt and pain from so many people. Um, so many people, of course, asking questions, well, why, how can this be? And it was a really difficult time. And uh, I think it happened two days before we were supposed to go on vacation. So Bang went to our vacation and um, we just had to uh, spend months, if not years, sorting out uh, the mess. And lots of times we would say to each other, oh my goodness, is there anywhere else we can go? Are there any other jobs on the scene? Can we just get out of here? Uh, but we felt God saying, no, you need to stay here. You need to pick up the pieces. You need to um, just rebuild, just, just lean into me and I will use you in this situation. And so we did. And just to brag on Alex a bit, he's, he, I think one of his strengths is that he's a really good leader. And so he uh, was really good at just knowing what to do, appointing the right people to the right places. We just prayed through that building, through that church like crazy. A lot of prayer went into it. And slowly that church started to get healed. Things seemed to happen, you know, there was a fresh sense of vision, a fresh sense of purpose. And new life started to emerge. And today it's a really healthy church. We go back and visit it when we're, we're there. We we're keen to continue to hear the stories of good things that happen. But um, it was really interesting how during that time and um, in the months after that, that all ex exploded, various different people, I think probably from three different people, had the same verse for us, which was this verse from Esther about you are called to be here for such a time as this. And for us, that really resonated, and it was a, whew, thank you, Jesus, that it wasn't just us. It was God saying, it's a bigger picture than just you. I've put you here. It's not been easy. It's, it's been very difficult, one of the hardest experiences we've had to face. But we got through it, and God had put us there for such a time as this and that helped to bring comfort and it helped to um to just know when you know that you're not it's life isn't easy but you are there for that situation at the right time i think as as we reflect on, back on that story uh, one of the key things and when you've been in those situations where where you know you've been there for such a time as this i think there's a mental shift and it's this the way i describe it is you you focus less on the external and you focus more on the eternal. In other words, what is success? What are the results you're looking for? Where is the acclaim coming from? And if it's all built upon the external, in other words, what other people say or do, you're going to end up with your heart crushed and broken. But if you're trying to focus more upon the eternal, upon what God says, upon this sense of a bigger picture, then you're able to have greater sustenance, you're able to access his resources more fully, enables you to see through even very difficult and dark situations where you know God's called you, uh, you might not want to be there, perhaps in the flesh, but you know that's where you're meant to be. And so this sense of going from the external to the eternal in our perspective, I've, I've found really helpful. And the way that looks 
funnily enough, even though we're talking about eternity, actually what it's about is the little things. It's about uh, being kind to your roommate when you go back to college. It's about being um, thoughtful to the colleague who's in the next-door desk to you, next-door cubicle when you go back to work. It's uh, being, being generous to the kid on the next-door lunch table to you when you're at school who's sitting by themselves. Hey, come sit over here with us. We'll make room for you. It's, um, it's how you respond to your neighbour. We came back from vacation, and uh, one of our neighbours who, who we've got to know in, in recent months, he's a long way from Jesus, but he told us that... Um, he, while he'd been away, he'd had a, a surgery which we knew about, been praying for, but he's got cancer, and he wanted to tell us about this. And so right now we're, you know, seeking ways to prayerfully to reach out and to love and to represent Jesus to him just by the way we live our lives. And I know you all do this stuff as well, but that's how you bring an eternal perspective into these situations. And it's the little situations of life, as we're faithful in those, then God can do incredible, he can breathe upon them with his spirit and do incredible things as a result. So, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. We're going to keep reiterating those phrases because I think they're those sticky, sticky phrases which we want you to remember because hopefully they will make a difference. I heard this great quote the other week, uh, which is this. We don't have a darkness problem in the world. We have a light deficiency. I love it. I'll say it again. We don't have a darkness problem in the world. We have a light deficiency. So sometimes I think we, we look at ourselves and we think, you know, I do my tiny little bit, but am I really making a difference? Am I really being that much of a light? And um, if you think of glowworms, um, together, when there are lots of them, so there's, a, there's going to be a couple of photos here now of these are some caves in New Zealand. A few years ago, we went, we had the opportunity to go. My brother got married out there. And um, there are these amazing caves, the Waitomo Caves. And you go down this, this big shaft or whatever, I can't remember exactly, but I think we had our helmets on or whatever with our little flashlight. And uh, at one point, they tell you to turn out your flashlight when you get to this room. And as the, this light goes out, and you just see the beauty of all these glowworms. They're just world famous. It was absolutely stunning. And we, I mean, I want you to look at that picture and think that can be us, that each one of us, even though we might just be a little bit of a light, together we can, we can shed so much light and so much beauty and think of the Father's creativity in making those. Who'd have known? And yet, together, I think we can display the, the, the light, the beauty, the creativity of the Father. So, everything we do when we come to Jesus, everything after that is spiritual. I think sometimes we think there's this divide between spiritual and secular. There's a kind of secular, and, and that's false. It's not a biblical perspective. perspective. So, everything we do is about um, representing Jesus wherever we go, every situation of life. And you may say to me, well, I, I just got this lowly admin job in this huge office, to which I think I want to encourage you and say, you're Jesus' representative in that enormous office. You're his kingdom placement in that place. You may say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a small kid in an enormous hut school. How can I represent Jesus there? And I want to say, when you are there, the presence of Jesus comes. 
when you're at the high school, when you represent him there. You're his servant. You may say uh, to me something like, I work in this dark place. Here's another image for you that perhaps a different analogy, but same idea. I work in this dark place. Well, not when you're there. It's no longer dark because you're there, because you are the light of the world, because Jesus is alive in you. It's no longer dark because you represent Jesus in that place. You may say, well, I work for an evil boss. Well, he's got a godly servant. Hopefully you don't say that. I don't say that publicly anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so so what, here's the thing. What's more powerful, an evil boss or a godly servant? Tell you what, let's ask Esther. Esther, what's more powerful, an evil husband who was a mass murderer and a bit of a lunatic, or you, his godly servant, the godly servant who marries this guy and starts to bring transformation to a whole empire. God can use you. You may come up with all these reasons why not, but God can use you. You are the light of the world. You represent Jesus in this place. You may be a little tiny uh, glowworm, but God can use you. So in a minute, what we want to do is to pray uh, together. We're going to uh, worship just with, with one more song, um, and we're going to pray for us that uh, we will have this sort of impact. But before we do that, so just one more point in terms of the whole of this. Of course, everybody knows that we are in a battle, and there's going to be another slide come up in a sec. Here we go. So we've got the helmet, and he's put on a spiritual armour. But life, as everybody knows, is not plain sailing. It's not easy. Uh, you're going to come a- a- against sickness, against bad situations, against evil, against horrendous different things. And while Jesus is far greater than all these things. It isn't just a yin and a yang. It isn't just two equal but opposite forces. Jesus is way bigger than any enemy that we can have. He, he will win the victory, but we need to be wise in what we do. And um, we need to remember that if we are here for such a time as this, we need to be rem- reminded of the spiritual battle. We need to not be scared or afraid when we have opposition, but we need to remember that our most powerful weapon is to pray. So we need to be people of prayer saying, okay, God, what do I do? Or can you do this in this situation? Or Lord, show me what I need to do. What is, you've got me here for such a time as this. What do I need to do? And if you remember in that passage that was read from Esther 4, she called for prayer and for fasting for herself, her maids, for Mordecai and his friends or whoever. And they um, prayed and fasted for three days. And before that, the Jews had been sort of praying for generations, I'm sure, for God to bring freedom. Um, And so this whole process was was bathed in prayer and fasting and other spiritual disciplines. So I think a key thing is if if you sense that you are in that situation where it's a God now moment, it's such a time as this, um, the authority doesn't come from you, it comes from God. He's going to bring the breakthrough, but we need to align ourselves with him and say, okay, God, how do I do this? What do we do? We need to be praying. We need to be worshipping. We need to be listening. And um, just on our knees, just saying, okay, God, what is it? What have you got for for me? And Jesus operates like this on the screen. He once said this, uh, I only do what I see the Father doing. He can do nothing by himself. I only do what I see the Father doing. We need to operate out the same way. Where's God going ahead of us? And um, we, we can do amazing things if we stick close by God's side. And then finally, just to remind us of this key verse, and who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom 
to this school, to this neighborhood, to this workplace, to this soccer team, to whatever it is, for such a time as this.